Hello. This is episode 20 of The Case Against with Gary Meese. Today we're going to be talking about a subject related to the West Memphis Three that if you listen to supporters should be a very short episode because according to many of them there was no physical evidence. Now, I'm not going to argue that there's a smoking gun in all this or that the physical evidence is spectacular or that it would convict anybody on, on the basis of the physical evidence in the case because it would not. Like most murder cases, like most cases, criminal cases, it's based on circumstantial evidence. Uh, and without that tool, without that evidence being evidence sufficient to convict, there'd be innumerable criminals just running around doing things all the time because it would be very, very difficult to convict people solely on physical evidence. It has its purposes and it has its uses. Uh, somewhat relevant to this is, is I watched the Central Park Five docudrama on uh, Netflix and also watched the Ken Burns uh, produced documentary that his, his daughter did, his daughter and her, I think her husband did on the Central Park Five that came out a few years ago. And, you know, it's basically uh, a lot of hand-wringing and a lot of, I suppose we're all supposed to feel guilty because these guys spent time in prison and maybe, maybe they didn't rape this woman. And the physical evidence is somewhat lacking that they were act the actual rapist and there is physical evidence that uh, a known rapist and a killer actually did do the crime the DNA is a match and he's confessed to it so there's there's no doubt he was involved there's also no doubt that these five young men along with about 25 Others were rampaging through what they were wilding through Central Park that evening, attacking people. Uh, they could very easily have killed somebody else in their rampage. They didn't do it, but they could have. Uh, and all of them served some time. It's true. On the basis of the attacks that they made and the acts that they performed, I think it was about adequate for take away the, the rape and the attempted murder and everything else to do with the jogger. And uh, I think the time was about adequate for the time they, they served. <laughs> Though I, I realize this is New York, so of course 
you know, they were never going to get more than a slap on a, the hand, uh, and they were juveniles, so they really were never going to do any time uh, if there hadn't been this notorious uh, attack attached to the case. But the idea that they, these people were, are entitled to our sympathy and millions and millions of dollars is frank, frankly ridiculous. Uh, if I didn't know anything about the case and I watched this docudrama that was on Netflix, I think I'm, you know, I wasn't really that interested in it, but I think I might have found, just because I knew some of the facts of the case, and I'm certainly not an expert on it, I certainly would have found it at least emotionally affecting, and uh, I would have felt sympathy for them. But, you know, when I know what they actually did, and I understand that the, the portrayals in the, the movie, and it's a movie and it's fictionalized on, on some levels, is a cleaned up, spiffed up version of these guys. You know, I'm just not, not I'm not particularly that uh, moved by their plight. I will say it was a lot better than the fictionalized version of, of the docudrama version of the West Memphis Three case, which was Devil's Knot, which was really just a torture to sit through. It's just, it's just an awful, awful movie by any standard, and not because of the subject matter. It is just not a good movie. By any standard, there's no tension. It's all, and all the all, drama's all revolving around, are largely revolving around a peripheral character, detective. And you know, we're not even sure. You know, we're not even sure why we're supposed to care about him. And the truth is, is I'm still not sure. Sure, I know why we were supposed to care about him and his romantic plight and this and that. Uh, but anyway, uh, I'm going to go into some more about the <clears throat> Central Park Five case in a week or two, I think, after I've done a little more studying up on it, a little more research. And if I've said something that's incorrect here, I, and I don't think I've said anything that's at all incorrect. But if there's something I've said that's not really on the mark with this, I'll be happy to retract it, but I don't think that's going to be happening. Anyway, we're going to be talking about, um, this is episode 20 of The Case Against, and I'm going to pull once again from my book, uh, Blood on Black. Uh, the title of the chapter is, It is Our Opinion the Crime Had Taken Place Where the Bodies of the Victims Were Recovered. Which offhand doesn't sound like it should be uh, a controversial uh, opinion, but as with everything else involved in this case, it is. Uh, yeah, I don't think I get into it in this chapter, but you know, there's a lot of cockamamie theories about the bodies being moved around and uh, the boys being, you know, being taken off and put down a manhole or taken off to a shed someplace and kept overnight and then dropped off in the morning and just all sorts of, all sorts of really just crazy stuff. 
just to fit somebody's wild theory uh, that will get uh, the West Memphis Three off the hook and put, put the blame on somebody, anybody else. Okay, here we go. Despite claims that authorities had no evidence against the West Memphis Three, and these are the killers known as uh, Damian Eccles, Jason Baldwin, Jesse Miskelly, uh, the three boys they murdered on May 5th, 1993 were Christopher Byers, Michael Moore, and Stevie Branch. Uh, despite the, the claims that authorities had no evidence against these men, uh, investigators found physical evidence at the scene that linked the murders to the murderers. Other physical evidence, eh, my reading platform just did its little number on me. Don't do that to me. Oh man. <laughs> Let me see. Why did that happen? Oh, and then there's a ding. Man, everything's going on here. Uh, let, me, let me try. I was looking at this in some other context. So I was looking at the, the text in, in another platform here, and I think I will go back with it. Uh-oh. Oh, here it is. Uh, none of the other physical evidence pointed to the West Memphis Three. None of the evidence was conclusive, but none offered grounds for exoneration. Other evidence, such as inadmissible luminol testing and a blood-spattered pendant discovered too late to be entered into evidence, didn't make it to the courtrooms for various reasons. Killers did not leave a great number of forensic clues because of submersion in water. No fingerprints were found of anyone, including the victims. Similarly, clothing items tested negative for traces of blood. Virtually all of the DNA recovered and tested matched the boys. Several imprints from tennis shoes were found, but none matched the killers and may have been left by searchers or others walking through the woods. By the time the bodies were found, and the bodies were in the water for roughly 18 hours, from about 6.30 or 7 on Wednesday night till 1 or 2 or 3 uh, Thursday afternoon, uh, a number of searchers had been by the time the bodies were found, a number of searchers had been over the woods where the gumbo soil was muddy from several inches of rain earlier in the week. <clears throat> the crime scene itself had been cleaned up with the banks washed and smoothed over. The killers had gone to great lengths to obscure the location of the bodies, which were found only when a boy's tennis shoe, and in some versions it's a scout cap and uh, and it was two shoes, according to Detective Mike Allen's testimony in the Miskelly trial. Uh, the boy's tennis shoe was spotted floating in the water. So they found 
what had happened was uh, the searchers saw a tennis shoe or two tennis shoes or a scout cap, probably all three, floating in the water. And uh, what had happened is Mike Allen went down to uh, retrieve the, sh the uh, went down the embankment to re retrieve the shoe. Uh, lost his balance. He was leaning over the ditch. Uh, fell in uh, up to roughly his waist or so, and as he was as he was uh, trying to extricate himself from the water, he felt something move un underneath his foot, and a body the body of Michael Moore came floating up. Uh, the West Memphis case has been influenced by the CSI effect in which the public has come to expect a higher level of forensic evidence than often exists at crime scenes. As a corollary to the effect, the value of circumstantial evidence has been discounted. Television shows focusing on DNA and other forensics in investigations necessarily rely on such evidence to figure into the plot. Otherwise, they'd have to rename the shows, don't you know? Anyway, consequently, the public is largely unaware that DNA from killers is found in a relatively small fraction of all murders, with latent fingerprints or any kind of biological trace found in much fewer than half of cases. Further contributing to the relative lack of forensic evidence in the West Memphis case were the cleanup at the scene, the submersion of the bodies in dirty water over an extended time, and their exposure to heat and insects in the open air for about an hour, contamination by search efforts, and subsequent recovery of the bodies, etc. In other words, there's a lot of activity going on that could have contaminated the scene. As a result, for example, Two samples of apparent bodily tissues found in the ligatures of the shoelace bindings on Christopher and Michael were too small and degraded to yield DNA results. CSI Crime Scene Investigation, the prototype of the forensics-based crime shows, premiered in October 2000, so the series and its many offshoots and imitators would have had no effect on the original juries even the O.J. Simpson murder case in 1994-1995, the breakthrough case for public awareness of DNA testing, followed the West Memphis Three trials. And, by the way, despite the fact that they had DNA evidence on O.J., and it was almost certainly his, he was acquitted for no, for no well, for uh, just a case of jury nullification, they decided they were just going to let him go because he was a black he was a black athlete and he deserved uh, the opportunity to kill his white ex-wife. Seems to be seems to be what was working there, um, and in fact, uh, O.J. still is popping up in the news. Uh, it's been what. 25 years, that sounds right, since the case, right about now, and I remember it well. I was riding t through Kansas to see my 
uh, kids uh, and listening on the radio to the Bronco chase and just about the time I got to the the house where the kids were the chase was wrapping up it was slightly surreal <laughs> anyway, uh, even so forensic science played a role in perceptions about the West Memphis Three case from the beginnings. The initial Paradise Lost film, while leaving out much about evidence against the killers, included the strange episode of a knife that Mark Byers gave one of the Paradise Lost cameramen as a gesture of goodwill. Remnants of blood were found to the knife. Testing revealed that blood could have been a match for either Byers or his stepson Chris. An example of the ambiguous results often obtained from DNA testing. Byers had told police, and that was more so more true back in that day than it is now. The testing is much improved. Uh, Byers had told police, I don't have any idea how it could be on there. Byers ended up giving testimony during the defense portion of the Eccles Baldwin trial about his fullback. Kershaw knife. Byers testified he could not say for sure that Christopher had never played with the knife. He testified he had used it to trim his toenails. He recalled cutting his thumb with the knife while trimming venison for Thanksgiving 1993. During a January 26, 1994 interview, he told Chief Inspector Gary Gitchell that he had not used the knife at all, but had said he had used it to cut venison. He also told Gitchell he might have used it to trim his fingernails. He told Gitchell he did not remember cutting himself with a knife, but recalled during testimony that he cut his thumb. The inconsistencies were mostly the consequences of not answering questions carefully, along with the apparent slip of the memory about cutting his thumb. In other words, there was a lot of inconsistency in Mark Byer's story about this knife. And you know what it all was? It was inconsistencies about Mark Byers and his story about the knife. The knife, um, as strange as this little episode was, and it certainly caused Mark Byers a lot of consternation at the time, it was largely irrelevant to the case. Uh, much of the second film, produced in 2000, again focused on Byers, with a new angle and supposed bite marks, implying that Byers left the imprint of his teeth in the face of Stevie Branch. Byers had had his teeth pulled since the murders, a commonplace necessity framed as suspicious. Uh, a check of his, the supposed bite mark against his dental records found no match. The state's medical examiners thought the bar mark may have been left by a belt buckle. The mark also could have been left by a blow from the end of a survival knife, such as the lake knife, a type of knife commonly carried by Eccles. And I'm getting a phone call, and I'm not going to answer it, but I, it's, it's disrupting my uh, reading here. So I want to say briefly that uh, 
was I going to say about this? Oh, uh, Eccles. Uh, oh, no. It's like a comedy of errors tonight. The... Uh, Oh, Eccles had, had had his teeth pulled because he was taking uh, medication for uh, uh, his seizures because he had supposedly had a brain tumor. And uh, that had caused his teeth to deteriorate. Uh, the long viewed at, by adamant supporters as the primary alternative suspect with much of the devil's not book casting suspicion, Byers Place as the imagined real killer has been supplanted by Terry Hobbs. All that was required for the change was DNA in a single hair that might have come from Hobbs found in one of the boy's shoelaces. Stevie's stepfather, which is Terry Hobbs, has acknowledged that the hair could be his, with the common sense explanation that his stepson or one of the other boys could have picked up the hair during Hobbs' interactions with the kids. That possible DNA match quickly took the heat off buyers and set 2011's Paradise Lost 3 Purgatory and 2012's West of Memphis on the scent of Hobbs. Coupled with a dearth of ironclad DNA evidence linking Eccles and Miss Skelly and Baldwin to the crimes, that hair has been the slender thread holding together the case against Hobbs. On the other hand, the considerable circumstantial evidence against Eccles has been ignored with an increasing focus on the supposed lack of physical evidence, which is cited by supporters who often just claim there's no physical evidence whatsoever. One of the most telling pieces of evidence has been routinely discounted or explained away. In his May 10th report, Ridge noted about a statement from Eccles, quote, Brian Ridge is a detective. Uh, Steve Jones told that testicles had been cut off and someone had urinated in mouths and the bodies had been placed in water to flush out, uh, unquote. Uh, Gitchell did not find out until May May 16th that urine was present in the stomach of supposedly present in the stomachs of two victims. Jones could not have revealed that information to Eccles because he did not have that information. Only a killer would have known about the so-called urine. Uh, the findings ultimately were indeterminate as to what this liquid actually was. Uh, it was not. It was not definitely determined to be urine. On the other hand, it wasn't definitely discounted either. I. It's kind of a mis some mystery fluid. Well, the urine finding was one of the most most closely held secrets in the investigation, with references to the stomach liquids deliberately obscured in written communications between Little Rock and West Memphis. 
Gitchell had been informed of the findings over the phone with no mention of the urine and autopsy documentation received long after Eccles' May 10th revelations. Further clouding most of the evidence are media misrepresentations, the cult of victimhood surrounding the killers, and second and third opinions disputing original investigative findings. Experts hired by the defense even claim the mutilations were the result of animal predators, particularly snapping turtles, though Christopher bled to death before being placed in the water. While it is possible, even likely, that small fish or turtles left some superficial wounds, it is not possible that a team of highly trained snapping turtles killed Chris Byers. The ditch was drained immediately after the bodies were found. There were no snapping turtles. And I will say that uh, turtles are notorious for being shy and if you know, human activity starts, they will get, get out of there. But the turtles also are active during the daytime. They would not have been feeding at night. And they would not have been feeding during the daytime with people, searchers constantly on the scene in the woods. So it's unlikely they would have had much of any opportunity to actually find these bodies. And again, the bodies weren't in uh, the main course of the 10 Mile Bayou, which is a fairly large stream that runs all through Crittenden County. Um, uh, it was a small drainage ditch that wasn't full of water all year round, somewhat elevated. Were there turtles in there at times? Perhaps, but they, nobody saw any that particular day. At, were there ever turtles in there? Almost certainly, and there may well have been turtles in there that day. I wouldn't be surprised if there were, and I wouldn't be surprised if there weren't. I'd be very surprised if there weren't turtles in Ten Mile Bayou. I've seen plenty of turtles in Ten Mile Bayou. Stains found on one of the boy's genes were analyzed by genetic design. Michael Guglielmo, I'm, I'm just guessing how this guy pronounces his names, uh, the DNA testing company's director of forensic analysis testified they were able to recover a small amount of DNA. Uh, the DNA uh, testing company's director said the sample was most likely sperm cells, though he could not confirm that. Now, re remind you, these are eight-year-old boys and I'm sure there's some exceptions, but generally speaking, eight-year-old boys are not generally going to be leaving sperm cells uh, stains on their genes. They're not sexually active at that age. Most boys aren't. They're not producing sperm, to, to, put it, to just put a period on all that. Uh, Miss Kelly, in his later confessions, described Eccles masturbating over the body of a victim and wiping his penis on the boy's pants. 
There's been no other explanation offered for how sperm would, wi would wind up on genes owned by a prepubescent boy. Some fibers retrieved from the scene were found to be microscopically similar to items taken as evidence from the Baldwin and Eccles home. Green fibers found on a pair of blue jeans and on Michael's Cub Scout hat were microscopically similar to fibers found in a shirt from the Eccles home. One polyester fiber was found on the hat, the fiber found on the pants was cotton and polyester. The shirt from the Eccles home was a child shirt. Lisa Sakavisi, again, somebody else, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce her name, Sakavisis, uh, a criminalist with the state crime laboratory testified that the presence of the fibers suggested a secondary transfer. As the blue size six Garanimal shirt, which belonged to Eccles' half-brother Tim Hutchison was much too small for Eccles. In an OJ-style tactic, defense attorney Val Price asked Eccles to attempt to put on the shirt, which he was not able to do. Uh, I will say give Val Price credit because OJ hadn't occurred yet. Okay, three red cotton fibers similar to those found in another t-shirt from the Eccles home were recovered from Michael's scout shirt, a pair of blue pants, and a bag of items found at the crime scene. The fibers were also a match for a red shirt found at Michael's house. In other words, the red fibers are an ambiguous finding at best. Items from the bag recovered from a pipe where it had been either discarded or cached near the crime scene included a pair of Jordache size 33, 34 blue jeans, which have been about the size that the 170 pound Eccles would have been wearing, uh, a black medium sized thermal undershirt, Mr. Black t-shirt love black t-shirts as we all know and would have loved a black thermal undershirt, a pair of white socks, two Bic razors, a plastic bag, and a tan short sleeve shirt. The items were wet and moldy. There was no clear evidence linking the bag and its contents to the crime other than its presence. Despite a similar red thread potentially linking Michael Eccles in the bag, investigators were not able to establish a positive link. The bag was from Roadrunner Petro, where Eccles' father was employed, and that shared parking space with Alderson roof, Roofing and Metal. Eccles told police he worked as a roofer for Anderson, Alderson rather. Uh, the businesses were not near the crime scene. Uh, the Petro station was uh, I-55 and I-40 combined uh, for about two miles through their routes. Uh, they merged for about two, route, two miles through West Memphis. I-55 coming from the north and I-40 coming from the east and west. And uh, the murder site, Robin Hood Hills, 
is fairly close to where uh, the merger, the the, mer the west end of the merger stops, probably half half a mile or so from there. Uh, about a mile and a half or so on the other side, the highway split again. I-55 going south across the old the old Memphis and Arkansas bridge, all the so-called new bridge, the Hernando de Soto bridge with the that is has the featured lights uh, over the uh, at night. Uh, it's to the north, and uh, I-40 goes that way. And right where that, pretty close to where that happens, there's a, a, a lot of truck stops, gas stations, etc. And, and and Petro was one of Petro Roadrunner Roadrunner Petro was one of those stations. So it was not that close. You know, there's nothing in West Memphis that's that far from any place else in West Memphis. But it's not a tiny town, and uh, it was not something that. Uh, the bag was not something that would have just blown in from somewhere or, or would have just been incidentally dropped by a passerby. It was obviously put there by someone. The clothes were wet and moldy. Uh, the argument might be, well, the uh, ad indicated they'd been there a long time. But, you know, if Eccles got his clothes wet, it doesn't take long for mold to form in uh, the climate in West Memphis. It's very hot. It's hot even in May, and uh, there's a lot of mold. Okay, a red rayon fiber matched a mat bathrobe owned by Baldwin's mother. That fiber was found on a black and white polka dot shirt, which, like the blue pants, was found turned inside out. Uh, Lisa, Lisa S., I'm just going to call her, again suggested secondary transfer and later explained that such transferences commonly occur when clothes are washed together. The polka dot shirt worn by Stevie Branch was the source of residue of blue wax similar to candle wax. A small blue candle was found on a table in Dominique Tears' bedroom and similar wax was found on a witchcraft book, Never on a Broomstick, from Eccles' bedroom at his parents' house. Similar wax was also found in a bar of soap from the Baldwin bathroom. Jurors cited the wax as evidence against Eccles. Candles are routinely used in occult ceremonies. Uh, Lisa S. also testified that submersion in water was, quote, very detrimental, unquote, to the recovery of trace evidence. She testified that a negroid hair had been recovered from the sheet covering Christopher. The presence of that hair was never explained. One obvious and irresistible theory attributed the hair to Mr. Bojangles, the bleeding black man who commandeered the restroom of a local restaurant shortly after the probable time of the killings. The hair could have been from a police officer or other searcher, but no hairs from officers were submitted for comparison. 
bolstering the idea that more than one assailant was involved with the veering notch used on the shoelaces to tie arms to legs. Understood the boys were tied with their own shoelaces, right arm to right leg, left arm to left leg, and that with the arms positioned behind their back so their bodies were bowed, and the boys were nude. The text used by the local witches of Crittenden County, Buckland's complete book of witchcraft, let me reiterate that these local teenage witches did actually exist. You might get a different impression if you read some of the other material that's been written, such as Devil's Knot, who Marl Everett just sort of poo-poos the idea that anybody could come up with this ridiculous idea that uh, there are witches in West Memphis. Well, there are witches in West, there were witches in West Memphis. George Jared, who of Jackson, of the uh, Jackson Sun, I don't think he still works for them, but he wrote a book that's actually called Witches of West Memphis about the case. And George seems like a good enough fellow, but he he based his entire book on the premise that the only evidence worth mentioning was the evidence that was presented in court, and even that wasn't quite good enough because he didn't certainly didn't present all that but then he also brought in evidence that wasn't presented in court to argue argue that they're innocent so he really wanted to have it both ways if you use that that kind of logic and those kind of premises you can it's pretty easy to make a case oh these well actually it's not that easy but if you ignore the evidence in the court don't use any other evidence that was gathered outside the court, including all these statements from people, including all this material from about Eccles, et cetera, et cetera. And then you turn around and bring in spurious evidence from someplace else or evidence that the defense lawyers presented in a press conference uh, to bolster your argument that they're innocent you're going to be able to make a, a, at least a, a case that, the, oh, th these boys were framed, which isn't the case at all. Anyway, the, the text used by the local witches is Buckland's Complete Book of Magic. And it contained a section on knot magic and how knots were used to bind magical spells. Uh, the magic number for knots was nine. Michael, Stevie, and Christopher were tied with eight. 10 and 4 knots respectively. So I, I doubt seriously if when Eccles was in particular was doing these knots that he had knot magic on the brain. Though he usually has magic on the brain but I guess he didn't have knot magic on the brain during this somewhat stressful time. The knots used on Michael. Square knot on the left wrist and ankle. Three and a half hitches on the uh, what three three half hitches on the right wrist, four half hitches on the right ankle. Only one shoestring was used to bind Michael by contrast with both shoelaces used on the other boys and another deviation in the patterns of bindings. In a later confession, Miss Kelly described helping pull shoestrings from the, boy, the shoestrings from the shoes. 
His involvement would explain not only the single strand, but the variance in knots used to bind Michael. The knots used on Stevie Branch, three half hitches on both the left ankle and left wrist. Excuse me a second. Three half hitches with the loop tied twice around the right leg. Half hitch with figure eight on the right wrist. On Christopher Byers, double half hitches on all four knots. The knots used were square knots, half hitches, and double half hitches, with one knot being looped twice and a figure eight thrown on top of a half, half hitch. At least three different knots suggesting that three people tied up the boys. It is extremely unlikely that one person would have used three different knots to tie up the boys, particularly in a high-stress situation such as a murder scene. The forensic evidence showed that Chris and Stevie struggled against their bindings, while Michael, with deep and traumatic wounds to the head, had no such signs of struggle. Michael also showed few, if any, signs of sexual molestation, fitting with Miskelly's description of a quick, violent pounding of the face and head, but subsequent protection from further predation by Baldwin and Eccles. A pagan axe necklace belonging to Eccles was discovered to be speckled with blood from two DNA sources as the Eccles-Baldwin trial neared the end. The prosecution had already rested its case when questions arose about the blood spots. The prosecution weighed the implications of entering the necklace as trial evidence. Judge David Burnett made it clear that the prosecution would be dealing with quote, two basic remedies, either a mistrial or a continuance, unquote. At the least, the new evidence would have resulted in a continuance while the defense was allowed to examine the evidence. Besides the possibility of a mistrial, prosecutors were concerned that it could result in a possible severance of the Eccles and Baldwin cases. One DNC DNA source was compatible with Eccles, while the second was compatible with both Stevie Branch and Jason Baldwin. The prosecution was prepared to argue that Stevie was the source, seeing little benefit from arguing for a match with Baldwin. The necklace, taken from Eccles at the time of his arrest, prompted a hearing on March 17, 1994, out of the presence of the jury, while the case was on continuance as a result of the discovery. Prosecuting attorney Brent Davis explained to Judge Burnett that questionable red spots had been found as Deputy Prosecuting Attorney John Fogelman and some police officers were reviewing the evidence. Fogelman was the first to notice the spots. A deleted scene from Paradise Lost footage available on DVD and YouTube showed a meeting between Fogelman and the Baldwin attorneys concerning the necklace. Though marked by jovial banner, the conference illuminated the difficulties posed by the blood necklace, also called the blood pendant, for both defense and prosecution. The necklace had been sent to the crime lab, where the red spots were discovered to be blood, and then was sent to genetic design in North Carolina. The prosecution learned late on the afternoon of March 15th, just as preparations for closing arguments were underway, about the two DNA sources. The lab attempted an amplification process to further differentiate the DNA 
which was successful on the larger sample <clears throat> from Eccles to not much effect, but was unsuccessful in differentiating Baldwin and Stevie Branch. The prosecution learned that in the late afternoon of the 16th. The prosecution hoped to present to the jury the DQ Alpha match with Stevie Branch consistent with about 11% of the white population. Because Baldwin was also a match, Eccles attorney Val Price explained in the court conference, Part of our defense in this matter would be that sometime during the time period, approximately a month or two before the arrest, that besides my client having access to this pendant, that also Jason Baldwin had access to this pendant. If that is indeed Jason Baldwin's blood on this pendant and not Stevie Branch's, then this evidence is of no value and not relevant. It should be excluded and not considered by the jury at all. Baldwin attorney Paul Ford argued that the evidence should apply to Eccles alone since he wore the necklace and presumably there would be no proof, could be no proof of a link to Baldwin. Prosecutor Brent Davis said his understanding was that a mistrial for Baldwin would result from entering the necklace into evidence, but the case could proceed against Eccles. Without a counter ruling, Davis did not plan to enter the new evidence. George Burnett pointed out that among the potential complications was that Eccles and Baldwin could cross-implicate each other rather than engage in a common defense if the necklace was introduced. Because the matches were so common, the blood spots could not have definitely been linked to either Baldwin or Stevie. The spots did raise the question of why Eccles' necklace would be spattered by two or more sources of bloods. Years later, Baldwin testified in a later court hearing, the necklace that had been acquired by Damien Eccles at the time of his arrest was one that I believe my girlfriend, Heather, who was Heather Clyde, had given me. I don't recall specifically how the necklace had come into Eccles' possession. As with all things in the West Memphis Three case, facts about the necklace were disputed. Eccles had more than one necklace. Brian Ridge noted in his May 10th report that, quote, Eccles was wearing a necklace that he claimed he had just bought at the Mall of Memphis on the Saturday before the interview. The necklace had a pentagram as a pendant that Eccles, that Damien explained meant sometime, some type of good symbol for the Wicca magic that he was in. The blood spattered pendant was a tiny axe, not a pentagram. Eccles had the axe pendant before the trip to the mall on May 8th. Eccles routinely wore this necklace. For example, Eccles was filmed wearing the necklace at Skateland on May 7th, two days after the killings. He continued to wear the axe pendant after purchasing the pentagram pendant. He was photographed wearing the axe necklace on May 9th. Because testing used up the original sample, retesting was not possible, giving the, the defense another possible objection since they would not be able to order tests. A bloodstain found on a shirt gathered as evidence at the Miskelly home similarly sh showed a possible match for both Miskelly and Michael Moore. The HLA-DQ alleles had an expected frequency of 
7.9% in the general population. And um, Ms. Kelly and Michael Moore shared these alleles. Uh, it's not that uncommon. Uh, and also because there's a fairly homogenous population there was at that time, at least among, you know, I mean, there, there was a large, you know, there's a large black population in, in, uh, in uh, West Memphis and a large white population. Uh, but, you know, the, the various populations are, you know, generally, were gen at that time, generally, uh, the white population was generally, you know, old line Anglo-Saxon, probably Scotch-Irish, that sort of thing. Anyway, um, Eccles had gotten the blood on the T-shirt by throwing a Coke bottle, said he had gotten the blood on the T-shirt by throwing a Coke bottle into the air and smashing it with his fist, showing off his toughness. The shirt was not entered into evidence at trial. Besides the hair commonly linked to Hobbes, and, and there was also a, 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 an African-American hair or Negroid hair, uh, about four other hairs from the site were determined not to have originated with the victims. Because the DNA sampling from Hobbes was attained by stealth via three discarded cigarette butts and a Q-tip, resulting in three variances after DNA testing, the link between Hobbes and the hair was even more questionable. Another hair found in a tree trunk was a near match for David Jacoby, a friend of Hobbes. There was no conclusive evidence that Jacoby was the source, that the hair dated from the time of the crime, or that Jacoby or someone else did not leave a hair during the search. Jacoby said he was not in the area, but his memory was spotty. And I believe that hair matched roughly something like 8% of the population, potentially. Uh, other hair included a dyed hair recovered from the sheet used to cover Stevie, a hair recovered from the Cub Scout hat, and a hair from beneath Chris's ligature. It's possible, given the imperfections of the testing procedures, that the same person was the source of all three hairs. There was no DNA testing on a number of items from the site, including other hair and tissues. Among the many misconceptions about the case is that no blood was found. Since Stevie and Chris bled extensively, Chris bled to death, the seeming lack of blood generated theories that the crime scene was a dump site, that the boys had been stashed down a manhole before being placed in the water, etc. Blood was spotted in the water after the initial discovery, but the site, which had been washed down, seemed surprisingly clean. Subsequent testing with luminol revealed areas where blood had been spilled. There was little testimony about blood. The jury did not hear the results of luminol testing. Since such testing was not considered valid as evidence, the defense team successfully sought motions to suppress luminol results. Kermit Channel and Donald Smith of the Arkansas Crime Lab, in the company of Mike Allen and Brian Ridge, who were two West Memphis detectives, spent two days studying the effects of spraying luminol, working in the dark, running a black light over the sprayed area to pick up glowing traces of iron and blood residue. 
testing May 12th, uh, the murders occurred on May 5th, Te uh, testing May 12th yielded traces of blood on both sides of a tree near the ditch bank with more blood on the right side of the tree facing the stream bed and the areas where the bodies were placed in a constant, after, that was after they were taken out of the water, in a concentrated area on the east side of the ditch in a pile of sticks and a depressed area of the soil and in a large area of concentration near tree roots. Other traces were visible where the victims were placed on the bank. Areas with the pile of sticks and the tree roots were cited as likely locations of attack. There were no visible signs or indication of blood at any of the locations we investigated, the report said. The testing was begun a full week after the bodies were found. It had rained at least once. The testing was in less than optimal conditions as any light sources such as stars and ambient light compromised results. And there's quite a bit of light in that area. It's, it's uh, not far from the interstate. There's light there. There was a truck stop nearby. Uh, their home's not too far away. Uh, such evidence would have been compromised in the search, recovery, and investigation, the report noted, citing numerous reasons why investigators were unable to document findings with photographs. Nonetheless, quote, it is our opinion the crime had taken place where the bodies of the victims were recovered, unquote. On May 13th, with tinting using plastic over canvas, Luminol was freshly applied and a less than perfect photograph became possible. Quote, these photographs still documented the areas of interest, showing luminol reaction in respective areas, reported Smith. Soils, soil samples were taken May 14th, tested four months later. No luminol reaction was noted, a result considered inconclusive given the age of the sample. By the way, uh, you can see the Luminol reports, uh, photos um, on the Callahan website. Uh, I'm no expert on luminol. <laughs> luminol testing, but you can see the little dots. It, it's, it's obvious they were seeing something. There was blood there. It's not highly impressive, but it's, it's, it's definitely there. And judge for your, if you don't take, don't take my word for it, go see for yourself. In fact, go see for yourself about all this stuff. At the time of the Luminol report, investigators did not have the Miskelly confession. His descriptions of the attacks accord with the blood evidence. A tree near the crime scene had the initials M.E. carved into it. And, you know, and that's possible it was just somebody saying, here I am, it's me. But uh, Eccles was sometimes known as Michael Eccles, which would be an M.E. While in Oregon, he went by Michael, which is his original name, and was in the process of changing his name to Michael Damian Wayne Hutchison. His family called him Michael. Much of the second-guessing of investigative findings by defense experts began with, so-called experts, I should say, began with the hiring of Brent Turvey of Knowledge Solutions, LLC, in 1998 
as Miscali attorney Dan Stidham sought a new trial and as the second Paradise Lost was filming. In his book, The Unknown Darkness Profiling the Predators Among Us, former FBI profiler Greg O. McCrary characterized Turvey as, quote, a self-proclaimed profiler. McCrary wrote, quote, not only has Turvey never completed any recognized training programs, such as those run by the BFI or the International Criminal Investigative Fellowship, ICIAF, he doesn't even have the basic qualifications to apply for those programs. As a matter of fact, he has never even completed even a basic policy police academy training program anywhere. He had, however, authored a flawed textbook on profiling. Turvey, working pro bono, examined photos of the bodies and other evidence and determined that the ditch was a dump site. He claimed at least four crime sites, abduction site, attack site, dump site, and the vehicle used to transport the bodies based on his contention that the attack would have required time, light, and privacy. He based this claim on darkness in the woods, lack of blood, and the screaming of the boys. The attack, and go into this, the attack occurred before sunset in woods well away from many homes and in an irrigation ditch depression that would have muffled sound. The crime scene was not far from busy interstates and service roads. Eccles told police how background noise obscured the screaming. The boys were quickly subdued and gagged. And it was still light out when this attack was going on. It would have been in shadow from the trees, but it was not dark in the usual sense of the word. Turvey also formulated the bite marks theory featured in Revelations Lost, Paradise Lost 2, which continued to fuel baseless suspicions about Mark Byers. Despite how Turvey was presented in the film, he testified he was not an expert on human bite marks. The new evidence uncritically presented in the movie consisted of no evidence. The huge amounts of money pouring into the defense fund, estimated between $10 million and $20 million, yielded nothing of value. The fibers from the crime scene matching items from the killer's homes, Eccles' statement about urine in the stomachs, the blood necklace, the knots used on the shoelace bindings, the semen stain on the pants, blood traces matching Miskelly's descriptions of the attack, and blue wax residue all pointed to the West Memphis Three. And that wraps up what I've got here on physical evidence, which supposedly doesn't exist in the, this case, if you listen to the supporters. The idea really is rather humorous. Anyway, thank you. Uh, I missed a week. I was extremely busy last weekend. Uh, I hope to get back on a regular schedule. And uh, uh, once a week, roughly Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. I was going to do it yesterday afternoon. My throat felt a little itchy and I didn't want to cough. It's better today. 
and uh, I expect to be back again next week. Thank you.